Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. We are live. Um, it is it is 11 a.m. on the West Coast and 1 p.m. on the East Coast. This is not a new time, even though this is it's also a daylight savings just to confuse well, yeah. wait, like ended day, let's say. Maybe this that's why I'm so time. tired. Yeah, 100%. Because the kids don't know. They wake up at the normal time. So you don't get like an hour of sleep in. <sighs> Brutal. I think you're Very right. Much so. <laughs> the kids that's are all up bright and early. So this is just, I'd be surprised if anybody actually no gets on today. <laughs> just be us. Perfect. What's, What's happening? happening, fellas? I've had a long day. It's only 10 a.m. <laughs> it's been a long one. It's been a good one, though. Interviewed David Gardner. Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's talk about on. that. How'd that go? Went well, man. Uh, I, he's a very nice guy. Did you uh, fanboy on him? I think so, yeah. I did. But I think we also talked about like some... Uh, I think I asked some hard questions. I mean, I'm not going to come out there and be like... You know, whatever. Did Some you order the code red? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we talked about how much of, you know, his returns are a function of interest rates. We talked about Ooh. how much of like he, you know, how much is he concerned uh, about companies staying private longer? Yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit about marketing on the internet and why, you know, Ooh. like my mind was like closed a little bit to the fool. So I think it was a, uh, Good conversation, and he's those a great guy. Are, those are good questions. Yeah, I think it, I think it was solid. Are so. you going to talk about that today? You're going to give us some. That was everything. <laughs> that was more. That's all I remember. I blacked Those's out. The questions. What are the answers? Yeah, I don't know. I was drinking during yeah. that. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I kind of want to now. Yeah. But then, this like Jake and I were just on a call, so it's been a, a day of being on the screens. How about you, JT? Uh, you know, we got a little weather here now. It's a little rainy, so that kind of will take the, the piss out of you. But, uh, but I've got a segment today on a, a Japanese investor who you likely have never heard of. So well, maybe this might be fun. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, there's some, I'm just going to give a shout out. There's some good names in here. Forest Hill, Stonkville, Townsville, Queensland. What's up? Early stuff for you, man. Stonkville. <laughs> Nashville, Tennessee, Hartwell, Belgium, Rayleigh, Bretton Woods. All right. Bretton Woods, New Jersey. Stockholm, Sweden. Very funny. Stonk What's up, value dudes? <laughs> uh, my topic. So there was, a, there was a market watch article that came out over the weekend making the argument for small cap value. Um, I'm going to go through it a little bit just because I, uh, you know, I want to believe. News. I want to believe, but there's some there's some interesting little parts of the charts and things that I want to talk about. Also, just overall valuation. We've ripped through 40 on the Shiller PE. Nothing matters anymore, but we did it. We might as well celebrate that. When when's our hundred hundredth episode, JT? I believe the 23rd. So I think we okay. have two weeks. Two weeks. So we're gonna do it. We're gonna do something for our for our hundredth. We don't know yet. We're gonna figure it out. It's gonna be spectacular. <laughs> We hope. Real and spectacular. Probably not. <laughs> it's either going to be that or very mediocre. Or just kind of show up and pretend like we're doing something. That's right. Who's going first today? What's, uh, 
Toby, you want to break off some market yeah, watch? Yeah, let me do, let me do, let me do market watch and smalls, and then let's do, uh, let's do what David Gardner, because David Gardner, he's a he he'd characterize himself as a smalls guy, wouldn't he? Is that where he starts? Uh, I don't not think necessarily. So. No, no, he's he's okay. a defying expectations. He's a grower, not a shower. I don't gonna... know that. Yeah, I don't know that he's. Yeah, I don't know that I need to divulge the whole interview, sir. Valencia, but Spain, I, I will up? tell you that my big my big takeaway today is investing quality growth companies. That's from from both conversations. So I'm happy to riff on that. So okay. uh, cool. So, let, let, let me let me kick it off. So the just the a few things that I wanted to note. So we've blown through forty on the Shiller PE. Fear and greed's at eighty six, which is pretty greedy. Is that good or bad? Mm-hmm. It's greedy. I don't know if it's good or bad. It's just market okay. people are feeling pretty good at the moment. Um, last time we went through 40, it was January, 1999. So you got a solid 12 months before you hit 44 on the Schiller PE oh. and China and Japan got to a hundred times. So don't panic yet. Um, the Ford returns over a decade, assuming mean reversion from here about <laughs> are strong, um, quite strong, <laughs> negative 0.1% on the index, but 1.2% total return, which includes 1.3% in dividends. So we're all going to be dividend clippers for the next decade. Damn. Um, the market watch article was called, uh, we, I tweeted it out, but a bargain you can't ignore. Small cap stocks are trading at the second biggest discount in 20 years. And the biggest discount was uh, last year at the uh, March 2020. Um, there's just a few interesting things out of this. So they went through the Ford PEs. So the current Ford PE for the S&P small cap 600 is 15.6 and the S&P 500 is at 21.59. So they're saying that there's like a 72%, the S&P 500, S&P 600 is 72% the valuation of the S&P 500. Now you might say, so what? Um, Small caps should trade at a discount to the rest of the market. But I thought this is kind of interesting. So the three-year average, smalls is 16.7, larges uh, 19.5. So the valuation over the last three years has been, uh, the disparity hasn't been as wide. The five-year average is 16.6 versus 18.7. Closer still, 10-year average 15.8 versus 16.2. Closer still, 15-year average 15.3 versus 15.5, like roughly identical. And then the 20-year average is 15.3, 15.7. So again, almost almost identical. So there's no reason why smalls smalls haven't traditionally traded at this bigger discount. So it's entirely possible that. So uh, what the if you could summarize that, then it might be saying that historically, they roughly trade comparably on yeah. Ford PE, but in the last, as the last twenty years have unfolded, the bigger, the more expensive it's gotten. So that's unfortunately that's the takeaway from that that the the smalls are roughly trading where they have for the last twenty years. It's the S and P five hundred has exploded, has become much more expensive over that period of time. You could make an argument for that it's the composition of the index, but this is a kind of interesting thing. So you're looking at growth rates for S and P for the smalls versus the five hundred. So they're predicting sales growth is going to be faster for the smalls at 7.8% versus 6.7% earnings per share smalls 14.1% large 18. Uh, sorry 8.2 which is still a pretty good increase year on year and free cash flow per share for the smalls growing 20.7 and the large 14% so 
on every metric, smalls are growing faster and they're cheaper, um, which makes me uh, like smalls more than the rest of the index. And with that part that I was talking about earlier with the, the index on a cyclical basis being so expensive, I think it's tough to be in the index at the moment. I think you probably want to be somewhere else. Well, is that the, the market sniffing out returns to scale? Yeah, possibly. Bill? I would be inclined to say yes, and I'd also like some index construction. Uh, so, yeah. Smalls are shittier. There's no question, but they are growing faster. Yeah, but like, I, I don't know. I guess... Um, I guess I, I'm not sure what the growth means, um, but maybe I mean I don't know. I don't. I, these are these are tough things without the component in like the components of the index for me. Hmm. For instance, like Microsoft is going to have a large percentage of the S and P weighting, right? Like just by definition of how big it is, their returns on capital are like quite a bit better than most smalls and they're growing True. at quite a, quite a bit higher rate. And I would argue they're like actually critical infrastructure to the way the world works. So they're not going to trade where smalls trade. That's true. Like you take, you take Microsoft out of the world, the world doesn't function. So I, let me, I let think... me try to push back on that just for fun. Not, not okay. necessarily uh, whether I agree with this or not, but could you have made the case back in, let's say, 2004, 5, 6, 7, whenever, that a company like Exxon, which was a huge part of the market cap of, of the index at that point, and had monster scale and was obviously important to making the economy work, like we need oil to run this whole thing, um, why would that be any different? And now it's like, you know, gets kicked out and it's effectively, you know, stock non grata. And, uh, you know, like, I mean, the world definitely changes, right? Over time. That was a quick fall for that stock, wasn't it? Wow. I mean, not, not quick in like decades, but amazing that it was at one stage, it was like 40% of the index. It's nuts. It was huge. Well, I mean, so even critical infrastructure, Toby. Yeah. Arguably you need energy to make stuff go. I understand that's how it works. I'm not an engineer. Okay, so are the highest return on assets that Exxon ever achieved appears yeah, it's not to be as good. No question. Eighteen point four percent, and they sell a good through good. undifferentiated gas stations that anyone can go fill up their car with absolutely zero switching costs. So you could have made the argument, but I would argue they're quite different. Mm. Fair point. That is a fair point, but people didn't seem to know. It's sort of become a more recent thing, right? That we're, I, th I do think that the, 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 uh, the S&P 500 looks like a reasonably good portfolio. If you look at the top names in the portfolio, like they're all Google, Amazon, Microsoft. Um, Tesla. Is, is Tesla? It must be. must be, right? Oh, yeah. I forget the top, the top names. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard to say it sometimes. It's, it wouldn't cross his lips. <laughs> <laughs> it's up there anyway. Anyway, that's my argument. Smalls are, smalls are cheap relative to the index. The index is very expensive. Uh, probably going to be normal returns to smalls, and I think the index is going to get uh, flattish. I've heard the argument that uh, the 99 
call it like value heyday renaissance might have been just as much a small renaissance over large as value versus growth. I don't don't know exactly if that's true or not. Toby, you probably have a better handle on that. But yeah, that's not something I've ever looked at particularly because I don't, I don't have any strong love for smalls. I do think that that size effect is a little bit mythical rather than real. Like I, I don't, I'm more interested in value than I am in size. I think that the size is like a derivative of value. You know, if something, if two things are earning a hundred million dollars a year and one's trading at $2 billion and one's trading at, you know, $20 billion, the smaller one is better value, but it's not better value because it's small. It's better value because it's better value. Yeah. Assuming Microsoft's return on assets isn't great, by the way. I'm, I'm looking right here. So I, I potentially am wrong, but 19% this year, 15% last year, 6% in 2018. We can get into how return on assets is calculated, but maybe Exxon was as good of a business. I think the switching cost was a lot lower. Yeah, Microsoft and Google and all those just got stupendous. Like they're basically returns on infinite returns on capital, aren't they? Because they, they have some money tied up in the business, but they almost don't need it there. They could pay it all out if they wanted to. Yeah, I would. I mean, I think you need to do some adjustments to the typical calculations to really. SBC. Right. Not. Not. Maybe. Yeah. I mean. Not write down the R and D. Is that that sort of stuff? Yeah. There's those kind of that like Malbosen paper that came out what was a couple months ago that's pretty good on some adjustments to make that I think are pretty logical. Um, But I always I've I've said this before already on the show, but that I, I think you're better off trying to put your business person hat on, put yourself inside the business, try to understand what they're actually putting money into and what is that producing and not try to follow accounting only treatments of these things. Like be a business analyst, not a a stock analyst. I think that's why I cited the return on assets improperly because I just fundamentally think Microsoft is a much better business than Exxon ever was. Well, let's... (laughs) <laughs> let's run oil up to $200 a barrel and see how, what their financials look like. Someone makes a yeah, good point. But that-, but, but that to your point, you are then dependent upon an input that they cannot control and other supply can come into the market. So True. like, I just don't, I you agree. know, Google docs tried to dispose of Microsoft and didn't go so hot. I don't know if it's over yet. I use Google docs for lots of things They're they're not as good. And that you and yeah. the two other people like it a lot. it's still pretty useful like the the spreadsheet because you can get the live data updated is great and i like being able to pull up the the doc google haven't quite figured out sorry microsoft hasn't quite figured out that distributed uh the word across different cloud word yeah the the word 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 every time it has to go and like confirm that i'm in fact the that i've paid my fee for the month it just frustrates the shit out of me honestly have I, I paid that. my eight dollars, whatever, for the month, so I can use use Word? It goes and confirms, and the whole thing hangs while it's doing it. The, so Andrew makes a good point. The game seems to become let's all make noise when we see a great business. Is that investing? Yes, Microsoft is a great business. The market doesn't know this. Yeah, there's not. It's it's not been a handicappers market for a while. First order I don't, thinking. I don't think that's true. I really don't. Uh, I I agree with it on certain instances. But, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of think that that's an excuse to not think. Um, but we'll see. Maybe that's a toppy comment. 
Microsoft's expensive. Like it's not, it's not, I don't think it's, it's not ridiculous. It's not like just look at it and it's obviously out. Like the, it's, it, but it's still expensive and you, you've got to, it's fully valued anyway. And the run that it's had is largely a result of it being not fully valued in 2011 through to 2015 and then getting a big hockey stick from then. The multiple has blown out the entire time. The underlying earnings have been great too, but the, there's a lot of multiple expansion in that, in that return. I would say yeah. has a has a great chance probably of working out okay. Uh, I don't know if you would want to bet 30 of those kind of idiosyncratically and expect to do particularly well. Yeah, I don't think there's 30 Microsofts. I'm just I saying think there's hypothetically. One. Okay. Mm, the math checks out on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do let's do uh let's do David Gardner. Let's give us the give us the good stuff. Yeah. No, I, I look, I don't know. It's just um I mean, so a different presentation that I was in today. The guy says uh Value investors are like accountants. They want to close the gap between intrinsic value and the market price. Growth stock investors actually get to uh, enjoy the benefits of growth. The math is irrefutable. If you get the math right, then it's over. And you know, I think where I think where growth stock investors, um, such as David Gardner and the guy that I was listening to today, are more correct in my estimation than what I used to be when I only looked at like trying to buy cheap stocks is, you know, if the business can reinvest in itself and you can win for a very long time, like, yeah, you, you can take a donut on some of these positions. Like David Gardner has had a lot of big losers but he also owned the trade desk since like three bucks a share. So now, you know, if you want to come at me and say, well, it's a bubble, bro, you know, fine. I'm going to ask you what stocks you own that you're up 33 X on. And uh, if we cut his stock in, in half, he's still up 15 X. That's a lot of re-ratings that you got to play. And he didn't pay any taxes. Um, and that's just one of many for him. So, um, you know, I'm not a hedge fund manager. I'm not a professional money manager. I'm just a guy trying to figure out how to invest. And I think that the Motley Fool uh, method of looking for quality growth companies and taking less concentrated bets um, and holding them for a lot longer for someone of my skill set is much, much smarter than uh, waiting for, you know, the next Coca-Cola and then putting 30% my net worth in and then finding out that actually I didn't realize that the RC Cola. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I mean, some of what I say comes from that standpoint. Like I'm, I'm probably not as smart as most of you, you know, so I'm just trying to figure out what works for me. And I think it's easy to say, well, multiples, but also like go look at the results for real and think the people that have won bigger, the people that have bet on businesses that have gotten much bigger over time. And yes, multiples have helped. Yeah. I mean, that's undeniably the case, right? But we're looking at the, it's been a long, long period where growth has worked and a long, long period where value has not. Like if we wound it back and we had a look at these numbers in 2014 prior to this run, 
you you draw a different conclusion, and that's part of the that's probably what makes this such a difficult game. That as one starts looking much much better than the other, it's sort of paradoxically the other one that sort of is becoming the better opportunity, and that's why it's investing such a hard game. That's not to say that's not a commentary on 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 the approach that you're adopting at all. Like you you got to ultimately you got to do what is best for you that allows you to buy more of something once it go once it's gone down like that's real you need conviction whatever strategy you're doing but i think that you know a lot of the run that we've seen has been multiple expansion in condi- growth stocks always you know definitionally they they grow faster than value stocks it's just you have to pay a price where you get the optionality in it rather than you know paying for it because it's it's hard to it's hard to handicap I say this all the time. I, I know that I'm, I'm. My argument doesn't look pretty particularly smart at the moment. I get that, but uh, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, look, I I honestly don't know. Uh, I I I do have serious questions when you know I I so energy right? Energy is this idea that everybody loves, and uh, everything else is a bubble. So let's go to energy. Well. Okay. Uh, if we assume for, loves it, I don't know. Those multiples yeah. don't look particularly well loved. Well, maybe that's because it's a shitty company or a business. It doesn't deserve a big multiple. Like to be fair, uh, I think. And 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 I guess what I'm saying is, uh, if if it is true that supply is fundamentally constricted and you know uh, everything goes through the earnings go through the roof, that's that's an awesome trade. Uh, I don't know how to trade a cyclical. I don't know how to forecast where energy is going to be in the future. I, I guess what, what I kind of continue to ask myself is, let's say we're in this bubble and all these multiples are super high. Uh, does that impact total energy consumption? I would think the wealth effect has something to do with spending. And I would think spending has something to do with overall energy consumption. So let's say this bubble pops. Like what happens to energy demand? Like I don't know how to underwrite the E at all. Um, so I, like I said, I mean, I might just be dumber than most people and I just kind of have to do what I'm, what I got to do. It's a little bit of a false dichotomy though. It's not cyclicals on one hand and growth on the other. There's a lot in between that can be a very good business that is yeah. managed pretty conservatively. And they're doing, and this is sort of like, I wouldn't say that I'm a cyclical investor. I would say that this is what I'm trying to do is buy sort of unloved but still pretty reasonable businesses that are run by a management team who's doing the right thing. Like they're, they're taking advantage of the fact that they're undervalued. If you, you know, people, people have laughed pretty hard at Dillard's and other companies like that. And Dillard's look, you know, spent years and years buying back stock with a declining business. So the business wasn't growing, the business was declining, but they were buying back stock at a faster rate so that people who held those shares were getting more and more value in what, was was left over. I forget what they reduced it by, but it's astronomical. It's like 80, 85%, something like that, the share count. And then eventually the market woke up. And from, you know, over the last 10 years, it probably works out to like a 30% return compounded. It's just that it almost all came in a very, very short period of time, right at the very end. Yeah. I kind of think an example like that is like cherry picking some of the really good growth stocks. Though. You gave me Trade Desk up 33 times. I'm just giving you an example <laughs> of one off the top of my head. I understand, but Trade Desk isn't just like a one-off. 
And I know that the values, the value stocks aren't either, which is part of why I don't even like talking about growth and value. Like uh, I joined at the hip. That you got it. The same you thing. got it. We've learned. Somebody drop us a note. Let us know. Are they joined at the hip or not? But yeah, I don't I, I just I don't know, man. I, I think a lot of these are really tough. Um, I just know that I want to look for businesses that can grow for a really long time and pay reasonable prices for them. That's all I know. I think that's a good approach too. I, no, I don't want to say that I don't. I, I really love that approach. I think it's really fun to do it too. Like I love what Ian Castle does. I love what all the micro cap, uh, David Gardner. I was calling him Graham Gardner. He doesn't like micro cap. Uh, he doesn't think well, the company is irrelevant. Well, yeah. Enough. So what's the, what's the distinction there? Because I said that before and you, you wouldn't. Um, his, I, I, I shouldn't say that he doesn't like micro cap that that's maybe a little generally broad, but his number one rule is like, if, if people snap their fingers and the company disappeared, would anyone care? And I think you could argue for most micro caps, the answer is no. Maybe some micro cap out there is like this super integral experience to people's lives. But like, I do think like micro caps almost by definition could kind of go away without the world noticing too much. Fair no? enough. You don't, you don't think someone would replace? Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing. I did, but uh, as a group, I don't think- It reminds me of the Brent B. Shore, like no business chooses to stay small. So if something is like small, why is it small? It's probably because, I don't know. You, it's still like, what do they say? Riches and niches. You can still make money in some little, like it just, it's just scale- yeah. um, you know, it just can't grow beyond that, but it can still make lots of money in its little niche. There's no doubt. nothing wrong with that. No doubt. And I think that certain things like that can be exploited. There's lots of local stuff, right? There's lots of stuff that just, you know, aggregate. You just can't transport and aggregate a long way. It's just always going to be a local monopoly. That's a great little business. Yeah. Yeah. That's there's, right. there's some specialty insurance companies too that just print money. Just un- unbelievable, but they can't expand past a certain point it just doesn't it won't absorb capital that way that's the kind so of like when you think about that <sighs> like how does how does that company motivate employees to come work for it pay them well yeah cash on the barrel yeah. not options yeah yeah that's a good point though you do make a good point like i, I talked to uh harry rackmandro he's a he's a silicon valley software engineer been around for a long time he always says you know when he looks at things like you know, GoDaddy versus something else. Like there's not much tech talent heading to GoDaddy. You know, it's, it's, it's heading to whatever is sexy and wherever they can make the money. And that is, that is a, that is a real thing. Like that's a competitive dynamic competitive advantage that these very fast growing, sexy companies do have that they can hire top talent and they can, you know, probably GoDaddy was well positioned to come up with an AWS type thing and didn't do it possibly because they didn't have, the top level talent there where you know amazon and microsoft and google do or not even that like think about like small banks like small some small community bank versus like a mid-level bank like i mean i wasn't at some huge bank but i'd much rather work at bmo harris than i would some like shitty community bank so if you're relying on credit standards like i just think bmo's process is better than most and then you know what when bmo told me you're going to be comped against us beating JP Morgan. I said, see ya. <laughs> Cause that ain't you're going not, to happen. You're not going at Jamie. Yeah, no, maybe was, on one deal, but not overall. Cause Jamie rolled up into JP Morgan chase, right? What, what, how big was it when he started out? 
whatever entity he was CEO of when he started. Was he, he was at Bank One, wasn't he? I don't know. He, uh, I don't know how he got. Uh, he was with uh, what Sandy Weil or whatever. I don't know how they rolled it all up, but he's made it much bigger and much better. Because that's always been the play with the regional banks is that you find some guy who doesn't want to be a regional banker and he's going to roll them up into something else. And sometimes that works and sometimes it all collapses like savings and loan type thing. But I mean, if you can find the, I remember like before I was, before I was a, before I was an investor, when I was a lawyer, someone they were handing around, I think it was when Buffett identified Jamie Dimon's letters as being a great example of a letter. You could have read it and bought it then. Yeah. Whatever era that was. Is that before or after they were bailed out? That would be pre-bailout. Oh, okay. So in banks, like FRC versus Wells, right? Like Wells has been That's part of the game. You know, like Wells has been cheap for years. It's just gotten the shit kicked out of it because, you know, it's like pretty demotivating. Now, hopefully Sharf turns it around. Lord knows I tax law sold it at exactly the wrong time. (laughs) Chemical bank. Thanks, Bo Banks. Was that right? Chemical? That sounds right. Mm. Mate, getting being able to attract the being able to attract some bailouts is a key part of being a banking CEO. That's right. Yeah, get big. Get too big. Yeah, put that on the resume. Big part of being Buffett, to be fair. He uh mm. he's benefited a lot from that. Do you think he needed it? Uh, I guess he waited until after they came, right? He was an indirect beneficiary. I've seen that criticism leveled at him. He'd have more money now if there weren't continuous bailouts. Ooh. He would Berkshire have record cash I... pile now. Berkshire record cash pile right now. 140 billion. You don't think, think he would have had a lot more bites at the Apple in the last 15 years if we didn't have just continuous uh, handouts? I mean, I think if we didn't bail out everybody Fed, in March, we'd be living Fed in a depression. Put? So no, I don't. I think everybody would be a lot poorer. He might have more wealth, but we no no one would have anything. Okay, let me rephrase this. Uh, not mark to market, but would would Berkshire have bigger and better assets today if there were no bailouts? Uh yeah, probably. Okay. They probably wouldn't have the financial portfolio they have though. He's got a record. Oh, I said this no, no, record cash bar one forty billion. Record cash. Is that good? Well, I don't know. It's it's a record. I don't know. Um JT, do you want to have a you want to give us some vegetables? Yeah, let's do it. So uh <clears throat> this actually comes from a, a recent Reuters article by Edward Chancellor, one of the ten, I'm sure, undoubtedly. <laughs> one of my uh, favorite books of all time. Yeah, capital. Devil returns. take the hindmost. Uh, he's he's quite good. Um, and this article was called "Japan Tortoise Will Outpace U.S. Hare." Uh, so we're so. What I liked about this is it combined some of my interests uh, into one article. But he's talking about how Japan Inc. has long proclaimed allegiance to what they call the Five Joys, and. Those five joys are employees, customers, suppliers, society, and then lastly, shareholders. So this kind of goes into that win-win framework that we've talked about a lot where the really sustainable businesses kind of have to have a more stakeholder mindset and they're, uh, they don't just, aren't just trying to purely maximize over the short term the shareholders' outcomes. But if you get all of these balanced correctly, then actually 
kind of paradoxically, the shareholder has the best chance at doing a very long duration good investment. So, um, those Porter's Five Joys are they? Uh, no, uh, that's just Japan Inc.'s Five Joys. I realize, but aren't they? They're, it sounds very Porter esque. I don't know. Maybe I'm missing Five Forces. Yeah. Um, so he's talking about how the U.S. has like been leaning towards stakeholder capitalism a little bit more lately, and then Japan is actually kind of moving the other way towards being more respectful of of shareholders. Uh, probably shareholders have subsidized somewhat the rest of the counterparties in Japan over the last, call it 20, 30 years. Um, and so there's a few examples of that, like uh, Steel Partners apparently, which is a hedge fund. They tried to take control in 2007 of Sapporo, the, the beer company, uh, rebuffed, didn't work. Uh, 2011, this guy, Michael Woodford, who was a British CEO of the Olympus, which is an optics company in Japan, he was actually ousted by the board because he discovered massive fraud within the oh. company. Mm. So he got kicked out because of like basically like sort of pointing out in his own company, like we found fraud. Um, just uh, <clears throat> so I think another part of it is when we look at the balance sheets of US companies versus Japanese companies, and you know, US firms have borrowed. $2.3 trillion in 2021, which is 60% more uh, than, or sorry, the 2.3 trillion in 2020, which was 60% more than 2019. And then there's another 1.6 trillion through September of this year. Uh, and then of course, Q3 buybacks are on pace to set a new record. Um, so if you're wondering where the bid is coming from for, for your S&P 500, it is, it's coming from the the LBO of these companies, basically. Index buyers. Uh, yeah. So, which it's it's probably going to eclipse Q4 2018, which was the previous record for a quarterly buyback. Um, now, on top of that, the US firms, I think one could levy the charge that they have been somewhat myopic in offshoring a lot of productive capacity from the US uh, in, a, in a race to really kind of boost ROEs uh, and maybe at the long, long-term expense of the ability of the company to, um, I think they introduced a fair amount of fragility into a lot of their systems by trying to offshore everything. And perhaps a, a pandemic is and revealing a lot of the supply chain issues and maybe lack of, uh, you know, humans have two kidneys for a reason. Uh, there's some redundancy that may or may not be provide you with the buffer to survive uh, volatility and survive problems um, that we've probably over-optimized uh, in the US. Um, whereas Japan, I mean, they still make a ton of stuff there. And in fact, Toyota has more EV patents than Tesla does. Um, now, I don't know if that's because Tesla, like supposedly, didn't they like make public all of their patents or something a number of years ago? I don't know yeah. if that's, that plays into it, but whatever don't let's not ruin a good story with with facts um <laughs> ibm had patents too still does um yeah so japan tickets to play in general is becoming friendlier to shareholders and in 2014 the tokyo stock exchange introduced some fiduciary responsibilities and changed some codes and like most companies now have removed their poison pills that were previously a big roadblock to uh, any kind of activism. Uh, and a lot of the cross holdings, which were another block against activism are started to be unwound. Uh, and and J Japanese companies are actually initiating buybacks now, which previously was sort of uh, corporate taboo. Um, and recently, Elliott Management, who 
you know, has, I think, do they have their own uh, sovereign Navy? And Army, yeah, <laughs> Army and Navy, yeah. Uh, they took a large stake in Toshiba recently, which, uh, you know, it's like maybe there's, the, the game is changing, I think, in Japan right now. Um, so this brings us to our story of this Japanese investor who I had never heard of, and maybe you guys haven't either, but his name is Yoshiaki, or Yoshiaki Mirakami. Uh, and he was born in 1959. And graduated and went to work actually at the Ministry of International Trade and Industry for 16 years. So he worked in the government for 16 years. And he realized that corporate governance is a really important thing to the sustained growth of Japan. He left to start his own fund at 40 years old, and he launched an activist fund uh, about 20 years ago. And he started, he got it, like he started doing activism in Japan. And you know, his style was to obtain shares in a target company and then try to force them to focus on the profitable businesses within that business and try to divest the ones that weren't profitable and not just make work, uh, which is something you tend to see in a lot of Japanese companies. Nope. Um, and actually, earlier this summer, he just completed Japan's first hostile takeover bid. Uh, so, like, you know, it's I'd, I'd be curious to see if this is sort of... Uh, does Japan today look a little bit like the U.S. did in maybe the early 1980s as far as a potential heyday of, call it lazy balance sheets, um, you know, low ROEs on business, lots of potential maybe. Uh, and in fact, like 50% of non-financial companies that are listed have net cash on their balance sheets in Japan, which relative to, to the U.S., I think that number is more like comparable is like 15%. So um, you know, obviously the starting valuations are a lot lower than the U.S., uh, and especially in the small and value basket, likely. Uh, so maybe Japan is a place as a value investor that might, you know, I think, Toby, you've pointed this out very correctly before, that a lot of times the catalyst of very cheap is that, like, business people come along and they see, like, gosh, there's all this cash here. It's a business that's underperforming. Let's get in there and clean it up and and. Um, hopefully they don't take it to the extremes of the 1980s where you get like a Milken kind of fueled LBO where, you know, like you just borrow a ton of cheap money and then go and kind of raid and, you know, you end up with the barbarians at the gate kind of stories. But there were some, a lot of good returns for value guys that saw a lot of, lot of sort of traditional value on a balance sheet, on an income statement, and we're able to go unlock that through activism. And maybe there's, there's some good work to be done here. Was America resistant to um, that kind of activism before that sort of 80s, 70s, 80s? I don't, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, you saw, I mean, Buffett was getting in there and yeah doing stuff at Dempster Mills and um, there were I'm sure there were activists I just don't know if uh, well one I think there was a, a much more financialization of the world kind of post in like the 1980s like Wall Street sort of went from being a backwater to like something that everyone well not everyone but a lot of people aspired to go get on there and make a ton of money um, I think cheap money also played a factor uh, like price movement too. I mean, going from 15% interest rate to whatever, five-ish, um, like that's, some stuff's going to lift off when you do that. And that's just going to attract attention. It's going to attract people who want to make money. And I think there's like the action just gets gets heated up. And then you, 
introduce uh, a financial innovation, maybe like mortgage-backed securities and uh, junk bonds at that time uh, that allowed you to, allowed corporate raiders to have a bigger ar artillery to go wage war against these companies. So I don't know, I think it's like a confluence of factors. What do you think? America had the conglomerate boom before the LBO boom. So there were a lot of those cross shareholdings and they were sort of under earning because they were using that slate of hand a little bit where they were trying to grow EPS on a per share basis rather than looking for, so you could buy something very cheaply, but not great. And that would translate through to EPS, but it meant that they held all of these very low return on. Yeah. Uh, a lot of empire building, I think at that point too. And, uh, you know, and it was the picking apart. The eighties was about busting all of that up and picking it all apart. And they started from very low valuations. That's an interesting, um, it's an interesting corollary that Japan might be in that situation. And if you, if they start seeing performance out of the stock prices, there's that, you know, that it's been a, that there's been a well-established culture of owning stock in, in Japan for a long period of time. But I think they call the households, Mrs. Watanabe, and she's very long-term holder doesn't trade a lot but if they start seeing some performance out of these things they might start chasing them and then well get some that scenarios of the, you describe some of the corporate uh governance changes have actually come from the japanese pension side who realize the trouble that they're in as far as returns go and have wanted to make the change now to get better returns out of their out of their business ownership and like actually forcing the idea that Hey, this this capital has a cost, and you need to like get over your cost of capital, which kind of was being ignored before. Um, are there, so this guy's an activist, and Warren Lichtenstein at Steel Partners had a run at them in two thousand. There's been a few, like over the last sort of ten or twenty years, there've been a few attempts at trying to improve corporate governance, but maybe they needed an insider who could culturally kind of push it through rather than American to a, just a different style. Well, I mean, and doesn't this kind of rhyme a little bit too with the U S of let's call like 1989 Japan, maybe comparable to 1968 U S you know, nifty 50 huge blowout, uh, you know, big bear market for a long time, equity death of equities articles, finally at the bottom after 17 years of, of 17 years of nominal sideways, but real return, like just absolutely gutted you. Uh, I mean, that's kind of been Japan a little bit. Like why wouldn't some consolidation maybe happen there as well? And um, I don't know, it's interesting to, to imagine. Like it's as, was it like Graham always or quoted uh, Horace about how the, 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 the fallen shall be mighty again or something like, what's the quote, Toby? Um, many shall be restored. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, he's, he's talking about words, funnily enough. But yeah, mm. Ars Poetica. Um, yeah, I like that. Is it Edward Chancellor? What's the name of the article? Japan tortoise will outpace U.S. hair. That's a good call. Uh, I, 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 there's a Peter. I, I always forget the Bernstein. I don't, I'm not sure if it's Peter, but I think it's Bernstein who had the 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 blog a long time ago and he used to point out the difference between china and england over the last and this was written a few years ago now this is 10 years old probably but it's i might even be older than that he compared i think it was the century of china and england and china has been a very rapidly growing maybe it wasn't a century but it was a very it's a very rapidly growing market 
and you pay a high price for it. Whereas England was a much, much slower growing market that was much cheaper. And England's stock market had outperformed material. I don't know where it is now, but that was the, that was the, to the point that he made that article. It was the case that basically it was valuation and you know really just basic improvements to these businesses to get them sort of earning their cost of capital brought the whole market to life and it sort of exploded in a good way. Well, and I think the Japanese companies have already been doing a lot of the hard work of getting profit margins better uh, to, to boost ROE. And now, you know, getting some of that cash off the balance sheet, maybe cheap buybacks, like all those things are sort of the easy moves of, of boosting ROE relative to, uh, I would say the U.S. has kind of done some of the easier things as far as borrow money and prop boost your share price. Um, yeah, I don't, America's, I don't know if there's a lot. I mean, it's, it's optimized, as you say. Over-optimized? Over, it's, op, it's at least optimized. It might be over-optimized. <laughs> Whereas Japan's uh, under-optimized, maybe. Too resilient. I don't know. But yeah, I think that you know, what starts out as, uh, as being a very good idea will be rapidly adopted and will be abused eventually. But that's Always, a long way off in the right? future. That's just how markets, that's how human nature cycles, right? Unfortunately, that is so. I did throw some questions in if you got them. I was going to say ladies first, but I know it's only guys in our chat. Jamie Walker-Dean, Walker-Dine, sorry, buddy, if I've mispronounced that. Activist investors are like pests that make the house cleaner. You know, I think it's like anything where there's, there's good and bad versions of it. There's ones who want to gut a company and, you know, do things that are short-term optimized, long-term detrimental and then i think there's other ones that want to be constructive and create change for that are that are sort of doing what i'd call like the lord's work of capitalism um and i think it's kind of hard to tell the difference sometimes but i do think that they're uh, they're good guys and bad guys like in anything yeah the, the, there's a reflex that the guys the incumbents are the good guys and the uh the insurgents are the bad guys yeah but that's often that's not the case it's the other way around uh, Bill, you got a question on cannabis. You got any, uh, you want to talk cannabis? He's for it. I wanted to smoke it earlier. <laughs> I love it. I have some edibles right behind me. Probably going to take one in the not too distant future. Uh, I'm interested in hearing your thesis. What type of business do you recommend in the industry? Might do well in the next decade. I mean, I, don't, I, I think, uh, look, I think that there are things to think about, um, you got to figure out whether or not uh, you're comfortable investing in something that's going to change a lot. Cause I think it is. And if you're not, then it's a non-starter. And then uh, if you are, I think you got to think about whether or not you think that a retail advantage is important or not. And um, how much wholesale you want to accept and whether or not you think there can be brands and, then I think that you got to start working through uh, the work. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I think an easy way to play it, if you just want exposure, is MSOS is the ETF. Uh, it's got some problems because I'm pretty sure it's all derivatives exposure. I don't think that they can own the underlying. But um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be easy. But I happen to love marijuana, and uh, I don't mind covering it. So. 
I'll watch for the change and hope that I can invest through it. Ned Faber's got a white paper out there talking about the corollary of when uh, booze was legalized after prohibition in the States versus uh, you know cannabis being legalized in some states now. And his argument was that the whole industry sort of grew 20% a year for a long time. Um, and so you probably I mean, did weed, pretty well. Weed's going to grow like crazy, man. I, I think any, anyone that like looks at, I, I mean, just the amount of opioid share that I think we could take, that's the, I think it's going to grow like crazy. And I think once people destigmatize it a lot, then... I, I don't know. I, I, I think uh, very bullish. I don't, I've been surprised that edibles haven't had more take up. Uh, people still seem to be opting for flour in quite, quite large uh, percentages, which. Why is that? I think it's probably cost of dose. Uh, yeah. Also turning point brands and, and uh, raw have created these cones. They're awesome. So it's easier to roll a joint these days. Is there a which helps for that? <laughs> is Nintendo going into the metaverse? Of course, <laughs> of course. Here, like, oh, so like this guy, right? I mean, it's just like a pre-cone. That. Oh. Put your weed in there. Tap, tap, tap it in, and you got yourself a joint. That's uh, that's some scuttlebutt research right there. <laughs> yeah, this is a deep dive. <laughs> I might roll one and smoke it on the hundredth. We'll see. Oh, oh, yeah, hold on, hold on. Oh, oh boy, that that will definitely get us demonetized. We have in some definitely place. been demonetized, even just. Why? First of all, <laughs> Google's in California, the leaders of all this. Secondly, people need to stop hating on the weed. There's no logic to the demonetization. It's just just what it is. COVID. Now we're yeah, done. now we're gone. There's now no we, welcome. Now we have to pay them. Seven gone. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I do. I, I do think a lot of uh, what's going on right now in the pot stocks is like retail flows, and you can see how the sentiment just collapsed. Not much has changed except for how many people want to punt on the stocks. Is it up or down? I don't even pay attention to it. Oh, it's gotten crushed. Oh, okay. Lots of stuff. I keep saying it, but it's true. Yeah, there's definitely a big uh, Peloton's off sixty percent. No one could have 60. seen that coming. Six zero. <laughs> Tesla's having a little beat up today because uh, Musk's selling down some stock to end world hunger. Oh, good for him. Cool. Shorts rejoice as they say they're correct as they're down over a thousand percent. Yeah, I, I like Musk as a as an entrepreneur. I don't, I don't want to be misconstrued as uh, I, I think that he's um, he's done a lot of good for the world, um, but he's been well rewarded for it at the same time. So it's not charitable. But he's still done. He's he's done some good work, and he's a great entrepreneur. The reason that he's got the money is because he's left it all on the table and let it ride the entire way through, which is hard to do. But he has borrowed against the stock. It turns out Bar, uh, Michael Burry pointed that out. He's got eighty-eight million dollars. Um, I think there was shares. Sorry, eighty-eight million shares. Pardon me. Yeah, eighty-eight million shares. Are that's, they not the same thing? That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, you know, you see that. 
but what kind of swap did he enter? Like, does he have a total return swap to hedge him on that? Like this, these, this information with that information is not information. You dig? Yep. If his bankers let him do that and don't have some sort of swap in place, that's a mistake. He's not Aubrey McClendon. Like there's a big, there's a big difference between where he is. But then again, uh, you know, when the stock goes backwards, which all stock prices do inevitably, even Amazon had a few 90% drawdowns. Like that's the, that's where it gets a little bit sweaty, but I don't think that he's going to be in any trouble. Particularly not if he ships whatever he's shipping at the moment, $30 billion. That's, that's an IOU. That's as good as money, sir. <laughs> uh, I think, I think the thing that's crazy about Elon is like how much, how much he has created himself just out of thin air. That's, that's pretty impressive. Even if you do think it was borderline fraudulent at times, uh, I think sometimes the difference between frauds and great borderline. successes are a success. Well, dude, the SEC looked at it and he got a pass. So yeah, the, sometimes the, people play by different rules and that pisses people off, but it's also a fact of life. The going private tweet was, uh, was a bit silly, but there's this, you know, everybody cheers for these other entrepreneurs who, you know, who, um, you know, overestimate or they, they give the appearance of their business being much more successful than it otherwise is in order to attract VC, which then they invest in the business and it all works out. And that's, that's a good thing when that happens. And I, I guess he's doing the same sort of thing, but so is Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. I, Theranos? I think yeah. that's how you say it. I don't think sure. that the metaverse and Oculus kill Peloton. I actually think there's, I I'm intrigued by Peloton here. I, I don't have a position, but um, I kind of think like there's a version of the world where Peloton treads and whatnot are sort of the underpinning of the ready player one that we're all going to go into the luxury ready player one on Peloton. Now, is that because we're going to be pedaling to provide the electricity for our houses because we didn't invest in any energy? <laughs> <laughs> no oh, okay. no that's not got it when was the last time you rode your peloton uh yesterday okay that a boy yeah i still like it quite a bit yes, i do so i do supplement it with boxing on uh the oculus and uh i have gone to the weight the weight machines at the gym uh, even the free weights a little bit gets i am fat so i do less of that than i used to <laughs> i think that the exercise where you don't do, know that you're doing exercise is really the way of the future that oculus thing where you put it on and you whatever you're doing boxing or whatever the case may be I they got to change the form factor uh it needs to be lighter on your neck i also think that like if you could have a screen on glasses that would be a game changer for peloton because like if you do try to do their strength stuff at the gym it's got to be on your you phone and then you're like at the gym looking at your phone for your training regime. Like that sucks. You don't want to be that guy at the gym. No one gets laid doing that. So you want to wear those Google glasses when you're at the gym? <laughs> that'll, that'll make it easier. I think it'd be a little easier. you're really going to get, get uh, the ladies love some... the Google glasses, Jay. It could be a lady on the Google glasses trying to attract dudes. We don't need to assume one way or the other folks. True. Jeez. No lady's going to wear those Google glasses, no. but I think we got that right. It's true. It is a nice prophylactic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. 
Instead of getting a vasectomy, I should have just bought Google Glasses. Yes. I just it would have been less painful. Comparable outcome. I'll tell yes. everybody I'm a value investor. That's that that does really well. <laughs> Sahara Desert, right after that. What 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 type of value investor deep value this? Like, see you later. That's right. I'll have a run. And also, you will have left. The wife and three kids makes it hard, but you know. That too. That'll slow things down a little. Anybody want to take any predictions on uh, this? I, f- I find this market is a little bit uh, frothy at the moment, and I kind of wouldn't be surprised that we have not 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 that there's anything you know you don't get you don't you don't win any. Uh, what does Buffett say? You got to build the arc. You don't get any re- reward for predicting rain. But this is purely just not. This is not me building an arc. This is me just talking off the top of my head. But it does feel to me like peak fear and greed on an expensive market with uh, reopening trade and the money spigot probably being turned down. This is uh, about as precipitous as it gets. But fade it. Take the other side. Let's make it a discussion. Well, so, I mean, one doesn't... uh, Who knows where you are in the, the cycle, but if you had to imagine the sort of soil that creates a large bull market, it's high interest rates, it's low profit margins, it's low valuations, it's general lack of interest or active hate for for equities. Um, I kind of don't think you can really check any of those boxes today. Not in the US. Japan sounds like it might be might be right. Maybe. But who who knows? Like, you know, is it could be 1997 right now for all you know i just think a lot of the heats come out of the market man i mean this earnings season murdered a lot of things so now we're gonna rip from here um i don't know i th- I, I don't know i wonder if i just it- don't think it's as speculative as it was a couple months ago would mm. be my only point it is the setup is unique in the sense that as you point out the um the S&P 500 index is optically expensive on a Shiller PE basis. But when you look at the components, the, the, the four or five biggest components are all pretty good businesses that aren't going to slow down. Interest rates are very low. And who knows, we could see, ne- we could see negative interest rates in the States. We've seen that on like the bulk of the interest-bearing debt globally. So there's no reason why that can't happen. Well, they're already real negative. Yeah. The, the, I saw an interesting tweet today. Like, what happens if uh, what happens if we're not in this inflection point for interest rates going back up? What if they just keep on doing what they've been doing for the last thirty something years? Like, what happens then? And probably you see what we're seeing now. Just the growth and everything comes back to life. Comes back to life. Yeah, I mean, rates are zero. Microsoft's worth eighty times. Easy. It's worth infinity. It's in infinity. infinity, isn't it? If it's if well, it's you got to put some equity risk premium on it, don't you? I mean, you you risk so it that- from negative three to negative one. Oh well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that'd be sweet. People would be partying. Lever up, baby. <laughs> it's a funny market, though, in the sense that you know the index is strong but expensive. There's been this like carnage underneath and all of the really frothy tech stuff. Value is 
you know, at its long run average, it's just cheap by comparison. It's not absolutely cheap. Although I think I hold some absolutely cheap things, but I acknowledge that everybody's, the only one. <laughs> everybody's portfolio is undervalued. I get it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's it, Amigas. All right. I mean, listening? PayPal's off $20 billion today. That's like, that's a, that used to be a real number. It used to be a lot of money. Yeah. I don't know. A lot, I think a lot of froth is out of the market. I think so too. But I, I also think that what tends to happen is crashes tend to be like very long drawn out things where the, the wind comes out for like 12 months before the pop. And it's the last sort of, you know, it, it's the, the run up in reverse. The run up is like years and years of like, uh, uh, High, too high returns before you get the speculative end and then the the bust is the reverse it's like a year of that the wind kind of slowly coming out and people just getting the you know Lord. we're not making money anymore yeah so now we're out we're all deciding to get out yeah. 12 months later and that takes six months and that's when you see the carnage that's why i said facetiously that like that would be around about february next year for six months so february to august could be nasty you can't have yeah. a boring market with a with a speculative minded investor right. base at the margin. That's why like Tesla running up, like Tesla's like, somebody told me Tesla was like 50% of the options market or it's 50% yeah. of the options market. Yeah, there's a lot of options activity there. That's, that's speculative, that's, right? That's investing. That's not speculation. <laughs> that's that's, that's uh, the tail wagging the dog in that instance because there's all that delta hedging, all that sort of stuff going on. Anyway, it's off a bit today. I don't know that that's going to change though. Like you don't think that's going to change, do you? I mean, it might, but like Robinhood, yeah. Well, now everybody's got a casino on their phone. Like I think that may be a step change in how deep derivatives markets are. I don't but know. People get bored. Or how interesting? How, how long can you sustain interest in it? That's the question. Like, do you move on to NFTs? Then you move on to whatever else, and eventually, oh, yeah. you sort of like Fanduel, uh, something else. Next, we're gambling on. NFTs or whatever. Yeah, but the nice thing about options is you can gamble on the upside and the downside. Yeah. How many people do you think of gambling? I mean, there's a, options are expensive on the downside. I'll say that. Yeah. Wait till they, they see that they'll give you money to sell puts. <laughs> yeah, to fund calls. Free money. Synthetic stock, baby. Oh, boy. I did. That's, that, this is fun. We got We'll be back again next week. Probably try to get back at the the, the normal time on a daylight savings time. Oh, so yeah. be like, or, yeah. or day, a, a standard time rather, because it's not it's not savings time, standard time. So next week will be at normal time. If they demonetize us for that cone, I'm going to be very upset with Google. Google's probably for it. It's probably just not going to turn up in some countries. Yeah, that's fair. All right, guys. Ciao. Cheers. Don't trust your government. Bye. <laughs> Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got to do that after the... <laughs> <laughs>